that better? That's me. That's on me. The Apostle John has stated his purpose for writing this account so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John chapter 20, verse 31. He states his purpose and that believing you might have life in his name. So knowing his purpose, we can expect that John's presentation of the life and ministry of Jesus will be one that tries to persuade us to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's why he's writing, to persuade us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In fact, when you think about it, the Apostle John is modeling exactly what the Apostle Paul calls us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there for just a moment. Keep your finger in John chapter 1. But notice this in John chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 18. This is a, the Apostle Paul writing to believers in the city of Corinth. And he says, now all these things in verse 18 are from God. These things. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So it's all these things are from God, these new things, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, now he's going to describe this ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us, believers, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here, back in John chapter 1, the apostle John, as he sat down to write this gospel, was acting as an ambassador of Christ. We can view the gospel of John as God making his appeal through the apostle John, John begging us on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That was the apostle John's purpose for writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, for writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And John begins this gospel account, as we've studied, with a prologue. The first 18 verses, he lays out a theological foundation for the deity of Jesus Christ that is just the, the highlight, or the only time in that 
the high point in Scripture in terms of presenting Jesus as God dressed in as as God dressed in human flesh. This deity of Christ in that prologue just comes through so clear. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Notice verse three. All things came into being through him. Verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse nine, he was a true light that enlightens every man. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In verse 17, he's finally named. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And then notice verse 18, the only begotten of God, Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, he has exegeted or explained God for us. So here we have the Apostle John leading with the most definitive theological explanation found in all of Scripture. There is no a way in the manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. It's not found here in John. John, instead, takes us back to the very beginning. John transports us through time to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In fact, it is the Word made flesh was with, was with God and indeed was God in John chapter 1, verse 1. That's where the Gospel of John begins. Presenting Jesus Christ as God himself dressed in human flesh. And the first witness that he calls, the very first witness to testify of Jesus' deity is none other than John the Baptist. The very one who Jesus claimed, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. What an amazing statement. Think about that for a moment. Think of Hebrews chapter 11, that faith hall of fame where he lists great men of faith. And yet, John the Baptist, he was... He was greater than Noah. He was greater than Abraham, according to Jesus. He was greater than Moses. He's greater than all those listed in verse 32. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets up until that time. John the Baptist was greater than all those and more. The greatest born among men, according to up until that time, according to Jesus. And as a result, I think that we'll all agree that this John the Baptist is an exceptionally well-qualified, great first witness. John the Baptist's testimony is given over three consecutive days. The first day of testimony was given in response to questions that were leveled at him from priests and Levites who had been sent out from the city of Jerusalem to investigate him and his ministry. We considered the testimony offered by John on days two and three last week. On day two, he publicly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, verse 29. Then on day three, while standing with two of his disciples, he again identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
We noticed last week that John's proclamations took place when he saw Jesus coming to him in verse 49, verse 29. And then again, when, when he was standing with those two disciples, he looked at Jesus as he walked by in verse 36. And so it would seem that the text is implying that proximity promotes proclamation. And so as witnesses and as ambassadors for Christ, motivation to share Jesus with our our family, our, our friends, our workmates, our neighbors, our playmates, our schoolmates, that kind of motivation will increase as we nurture that personal relationship with Jesus. Because proximity promotes proclamation. We suggested that to nurture that relationship with Christ, we we need to abide with him, and then we need to imitate him. In that way, we keep close to Jesus. And proximity promotes proclamation. By being close to him, proximity to Jesus promotes proclamation of the gospel. This morning, we want to look at the ripple effect of John the Baptist's testimony. Our text is John chapter 1, verses 35 through to the end of verse 42. We're going to see the power here of credible endorsements to persuade others to at least consider Jesus. But before we go there, I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, for the reading from God's Word. Please stand, and I'll read beginning at verse 29 of John chapter 1. Beginning at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, 
We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. Father in heaven, you are a great and awesome God in the truest sense of those words. The psalmist wonders, what is man that you are mindful of us? Forgive us our trespasses and enable us to forgive those who have trespassed against us. May our fear of you help us to flee temptation and pursue holiness. May our love for you help us to make choices that please you. Not because we have to, but because we want to. Thank you for the scriptures, your written word. A word that has the power to transform us from the inside out. Teach us, we pray. And then enable us by your spirit and for your glory to respond appropriately in the powerful name of Jesus. We ask these things. Amen. What is the best form of advertisement? Word of mouth, right? A couple of weeks ago I was talking with Mike Boyd about his lawn care and landscaping business. Mike has been looking after our lawn while our lawnmower decided to go for a time out. But I'm happy to say that our lawnmower is back in order and I'm back on the job. I won't do near as good a job as Mike, but anyway, as part of the conversation, Mike had said that The only advertisement that he's ever made for his company is the 
name on his truck. And yet, he's busy. How's that possible? Word of mouth. Recommendations. One person telling another. Credible endorsements or recommendations impact other people. Credible endorsements come from sources that are credible. That's the important word, credible endorsements. If they don't come from a source that we trust, then we're just going to blow them off. But credible endorsements get our attention, and they often sway our opinion. Credible endorsements have power to persuade. And credible endorsements of Jesus Christ persuade others to investigate him. Notice in chapter 1, again, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he's walking by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, heard John the Baptist speak, and they followed Jesus. Because of John the Baptist's endorsement, two of his disciples followed Jesus. John endorsed Jesus as the Lamb of God. And remember, this isn't the first time that John the Baptist has done that. Look up at verse 27. Sorry, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The following day, while standing with two of his disciples, he uses the Cole's Notes version. Is that still... Do people know what Cole's... Or am I dating myself? Anyway, it's the Reader's Digest version, the short version. Behold, the Lamb of God. And by way of review, because we talked about this last week, we know that the Jewish relationship with God was based on a on an elaborate sacrificial system. And I'm just glad that I'm born on this side of the cross. Because as I read what took place in the Old Testament, I have a hard time figuring it all out. But what we do know, what is very clear, is that the shedding of blood was a significant part of that sacrificial system. And sheep were certainly the victims in a lot of cases. John MacArthur, I quoted last week, said, Though Israel sought a Messiah who would be a prophet, king, and conqueror, God had to send a lamb. And he did. And I would like to add, just like Isaiah the prophet had prophesied, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah chapter 56, 53 verses 6 and 7. That may not have been the picture that the Jews had in their minds of what the Messiah would look like, but it was certainly what God had in mind. Behold, the Lamb of God. That was John the Baptist's endorsement of Jesus Messiah to two of his disciples. 
as they stood there watching Jesus pass by. And although they probably did not grasp fully the implications, in fact, it appears that John may have not even grasped the full implications of that title, it is quite possible that he missed it as well. Because later on in the gospel, we find him questioning, Jesus, are you really the Messiah when he's in prison? But these two disciples, they were persuaded at least to follow up. They had some desire to do a preliminary investigation. And so they followed Jesus as a result of John's endorsement. Notice it's two of his disciples. That implies that these two men were disciples of John the Baptist. Although not stated, they, like many others, had gone out to the wilderness to see this voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, verse 25. They had come to hear this powerful preacher responded to his message by repenting of their sins, been baptized as a sign, outward sign, that they too were going to do their best to live a righteous life in in preparation for the coming Messiah. And because they, they were identified as his disciples, they probably stuck around. Spent an extended period of time with John the Baptist, watching, listening, learning, and serving the Baptist. They knew all the details of John's testimony. They'd heard it again and again, probably a thousand times. Their relationship with him made this endorsement credible. They trusted him. And it became a significant, a significant influence in their decision to follow Jesus. And so when Jesus turned and saw them following him, they asked, what do you seek? We can take this question just at face value. Jesus saw these two guys following him and he asked, what do you want? And that's a legitimate question. But some have suggested that Jesus may have been asking something much deeper. Like, what do you really want out of life? I don't know if that's the case on this occasion, but what I do know is that Jesus is going to ask that question of us. He is going to require us to answer the question on a deeper level. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 14, sorry. Notice verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him, with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a far way, is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus wants us to count the cost before deciding to follow him. Sit down and count the cost. These two disciples of John responded to Jesus' question by acknowledging Jesus as a teacher and asked where he was staying. With that title, Rabbi, they're showing him respect, giving him honor. But at the same time, they're saying, we're teachable. We're ready to listen, to sit under your teaching as we've sat under John the Baptist. They had questions. Their curiosity was running at an all-time high. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. They were more than ready to listen. And let me just take a moment here to point something out. Did you notice that um, there in verse... 38, they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated, means teacher. Look down at verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Now verse 42. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. What's happening here? The Apostle John is broadening the scope of his message. He wants to make this message as accessible as he can to as many people as he could. So he's translating into Greek so that the Greek-speaking people will be able to understand what's happening here. And that certainly has some implications for our attempts when we share with family and friends and associates. But Jesus responds to their respectful expression of interest by extending a a really great, just graceful invitation. Come, he says to them, and you will see. Can you imagine the Son of Man? Come, and you will see. And so they came, they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. That's the phrase you want to underline in your Bible. They stayed with him. Word translated stayed can also be translated to remain or to abide. The same abide that we find in John chapter 15. Abide in me, that great passage on the vine and the branches. Abide in me and I will abide in you. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We ought to be encouraged by this passage of Scripture at the accessibility accessibility of Jesus. The tenth hour is probably about four o'clock in the afternoon. The Greek clock began at midnight, and so some would argue that it's ten o'clock in the morning. But most agree 
that it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Because it was later in the day when they arrived where Jesus was staying, they probably spent the night abiding with him, sitting, listening, learning from the rabbi. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, God dressed in human flesh. Jesus is an engaging rabbi, which translated means teacher. Even in the early days of his public ministry, he was recognized as an exceptional teacher. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29 reads, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. But, but how does that help you and me? It's not that we can set an appointment and go and sit at Jesus' feet. But John chapter 14, Jesus provides us with a promise. Let's turn there. John chapter 14. And Jesus is preparing his followers for his death. In verse 25, he gives this promise. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then go back up to verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another Helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Interesting. So although we may not be able to go and see Jesus, he is saying that he will come to us. We can't go and stay with him. But Jesus the word who became flesh has just promised that the written word accompanied by the spirit of God would be our helper forever. Followers of Jesus have an advantage of this indwelling spirit, an indwelling teacher. Remember the story of Martha and Mary back in Luke chapter 10? Let me read that section for you. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. It's just a short section. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came to him and said, Lord, do not, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You see, we need to, bless you, we need to avail ourselves of Jesus' accessibility. We need to avail ourselves of that. Jesus is accessible to followers who are available and teachable. Following my high school graduation, I attended... Bless you. 
<laughs> no, you're okay. Following my high school graduation, I attended the University of Guelph. I was a, a fairly new Christian at the time. And so my pastor, looking out for my well-being, contacted the university, actually a Christian group on campus, and wanting to make sure that I would get connected when I arrived on campus. And so before I left home, he took me aside and said, "Um, there's a guy by the name of Ray Peterson with the Navigators that I'd like you to look up when you get to campus. And I remember Arriving on campus, my parents had dropped me off the night before, and I was standing in these long lineups, and there were several of them, and I was in the the A to D lineup. And then there was all these lineups down the row, and I saw these people coming down the line with a clipboard. They were actually doing a survey. And as I was approached by a guy and we went through the survey, I, I figured out, okay, these people are Christians just by the question. I think there were four or five questions that they were asking. And so I asked him, I, I said, have you, have you heard of the Navigators? And he looked at me and he said, well, actually, that's who we are. We're, we're doing this survey. It was the Navigators. I said, oh, neat. Well, my pastor, and I explained the story, had contacted the Navigators, and I'm supposed to look up Ray Peterson when I arrived on camp, campus. And um, he said, uh, well, I'm Ray Peterson. (laughs) Welcome to Guelph, George. Just a coincidence? Maybe. I choose to look at those kinds of incidences as divine appointments. But regardless, that was my beginning with the Navigators that ended up them building into my life some spiritual disciplines. But I, I tell you, that God continues to use in my life to this very day. Exceptional relationship. But as I recall those days with the navigators, they used to always say that they're looking for fat people. F-A-T, fat people. And then more recently, I've heard that that was expanded to fatter people. No pun intended. But F-A-T-R, fatter people. Faithful, available, teachable, and responsible. Jesus is accessible to followers who are available and teachable. You see, credible endorsements have the power to persuade. And credible endorsements of Jesus persuade others to be introduced to him. Notice verse 40 of John chapter 1. One of the two heard Jesus speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his, he, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, you have found the Messiah, which is translated means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Because of Andrew's endorsement, Peter was willing to be introduced to Jesus. Andrew, remember, is one of those two disciples who had been following John the Baptist and now followed Jesus as a result of John the Baptist's testimony. You see what's happening here? 
in this passage of Scripture. John the Baptist identified Jesus with, Behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 36, Andrew followed Jesus, came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. Verse 39, and then went and found his brother claiming, we have found the Messiah. It's a ripple effect. From God to John the Baptist, from John the Baptist to Andrew, one of the two that followed Jesus, and from Andrew to Peter. The one of the disciples, the one of the two who is not named in this passage is most agree would be the disciple who wrote this particular book. Remember that the Apostle John, he's playing hide-and-seek throughout the Gospel of John, never reveals his name. Andrew is identified as Simon Peter's brother. And I remember um, not being really thrilled as a, in my early teens when I go into job interviews or being introduced to to someone for the first time, and they, oh, you're Bob's boy. Uh, later on, I learned to appreciate the, you know, the advantage of being associated with my dad. But early on, anyway, for Andrew, the reality is that Simon Peter's name became much more popular as the church history unfolded. And remember, John's writing this in 90 AD, some 50 years after these happenings. So Andrew was first and foremost known as Simon Peter's brother. The fact that Andrew first found his brother implies a couple of things. Number one, that Simon Peter was a priority for Andrew. When it came to sharing a a significant happening in his life, he was going to go to Peter and tell him, or to Simon, his brother Simon. First and foremost, he wanted him to know. Obviously, he considered this relationship with Simon to be a significant one. That's something that Cynthia and I have always tried to encourage amongst our our sons, our three sons. I think Andrew and Simon's parents would have been thrilled to hear this. The second implication of that word, first, indicates that Simon Peter was the first of many. Indeed, Andrew is never mentioned in the Gospel of John when he's not bringing someone to Jesus. Look at John chapter 6. He sets the context in verse 4 of John chapter 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that, so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. In other words, there's no way we can afford to feed these people. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, 
There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Again, Andrew introducing a small boy to Jesus. Flip over to chapter 12. This is the only two times he's mentioned in the gospel. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Verse 22, interesting. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Seems that Andrew was this expert relational bridge builder. He was always bringing people to Jesus. And John the Baptist's endorsement of Jesus as the Lamb of God, Andrew's endorsement was, we have found the Messiah, verse 41, which translated means the Christ, literally the anointed one. I like the detail John adds here. Andrew brought him to Jesus. He didn't make his declaration and leave. He didn't just point the way. Reminds me of that little rhyme. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than simply point the way. I can almost see Andrew taking his brother Simon by the arm, saying, come on, Simon, you have to meet Jesus. Let me also point out that through all of these endorsements, as good as they were, they still required a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. There's no passing of the baton. John the Baptist led to Andrew, led to Simon Peter. My endorsement is not good enough, and your endorsement is is not either. Everyone has to respond to Jesus' invitation to come and see. Upon his arrival, Jesus looked at Simon. Notice verse 42. By the way, that's the same look that John had back in verse 36. Where he says that, again, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus. This is not a drive-by look. This is a look that has partnered with discernment. It has some, some insight attached to it. And looking at Simon, Jesus renames him. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter or Rock. The Apostle John does not include any sort of response from Peter, Simon which seems to suggest that he was okay with Jesus renaming him. Apparently, it was not uncommon for rabbis to present names or nicknames to followers that would characterize them. In the Old Testament, we've seen all kinds of examples of this. The Lord often renamed people in terms of special callings. Abram was renamed Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel, and the list can go on and on. But here, their initial meeting, 
Jesus renames Simon, suggesting a future reality for this guy. Apparently, Peter's was not a proper name. It was more of a nickname. So he was called The Rock. Regardless, it became a name that stuck and one that became characteristic. We really know Peter by this name, one of his leading disciples who played a a major role in New Testament Christianity and certainly the New Testament church. Although not perfect, he became a rock. So Jesus is the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. As I mentioned earlier, Messiah or Christ means anointed one. The Old Testament anointed prophets and priests and kings, thereby setting them apart for special service. So for the Jews, when they spoke of their Messiah, they were thinking of a conquering king who would come and deliver them from all their enemies and set up his kingdom here on earth. That anointing represented the Spirit of God indwelling that person for a special task. And that will happen someday. Christ will return as a conquering king to judge the world and establish his righteous kingdom. But first, there is a lamb, a suffering servant, described in Isaiah chapter 53, sent to to bear our sins and not to deliver us from our enemies, but to deliver us from our sins and the kingdom of darkness. The only other occasion this word Messiah is used in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 4, where Jesus encounters a woman at the well. In verse 25, it reads, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Christ, far more common in John, appearing some 18 to 20 times. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, on trial. And it says, And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God, And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Jesus, the approachable Messiah. And Jesus, the Messiah, is accessible to followers who are moldable. Just as I am was a hymn that became famous during the, the days of evangelistic crusades. I think it was sung at the end of every one of Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea's evangelistic crusades. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, 
though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, thy love unknown hath broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. That is true. As absolutely true. We come to the Messiah, to Christ, just as we are. But folks, we cannot remain there. Jesus gives us a new heart and a fresh start that changes everything. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seventeen says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. New Living Translation translates that this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Let me remind us, it's a new beginning. Although he had a new name, there was still a lot of heavy lifting ahead. This transformation that comes to followers of Christ offers a lifetime of hard work. The good news is that we're not alone. Apostle Paul's encouragement sustains us. And I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. And I love the picture that Isaiah paints in Isaiah chapter 64. And yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are formed by your hand. That's it. He's the potter, and we are the clay. Jesus engages with followers who are moldable. Credible endorsements of Jesus influence others to investigate him, and to be exposed to him. Because of John the Baptist's endorsement, two of his disciples, they followed Jesus. Because of Andrew's endorsement, Peter was allowed to be introduced to Jesus. Jesus is an engaging rabbi, which translates means teacher, an inspiring Messiah, which translates means the Christ. Jesus' followers are available, teachable, and moldable. Let's pray.